I would say over time, QED has both moved earlier and later to where we have a number of programs that are really focused on the pre-seed stage, really trying to meet founders when they first have their ideas and really trying to partner with people right out of the bat. We absolutely love partnering with local firms in the countries we operate in. And so we created this fund largely to be able to start partnering with entrepreneurs earlier and earlier in their life cycle, to be able to do it as part of coalition rounds with other incredibly talented local venture firms. If I were to pick one trend that I'm personally just really intrigued by, it's the whole notion of embedded finance. How do you really take either offline businesses or marketplaces or e-commerces and essentially wrap those with a financial services layer, whether it's payments or lending or insurance or you name it? I think that's actually one of the wonderful innovations that's happening right now. Welcome to Fundamental Fairness a podcast about financial inclusion from the lens of entrepreneurs, policymakers, and investors. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness. And today we have Bill Salufo to talk about fintech and how it's powering LATAM's fintech boom. Let me give you some context before we get started. As usual, fintech has arguably been the hottest sector in 2021. Additionally, infrastructure fintech companies in areas such as banking as a service and embedded finance have allowed fintech startups to introduce financial products to market quicker and cheaper. This shift has further spurred enthusiasm and caused investors to pour money into this space, including Bill, causing massive valuation step-ups and minting new unicorns in the process. This couldn't be truer in regions such as Latin America. According to Crunchbase data, this region is now home to more than 20 unicorns. As fintech venture capital investments continue to soar at a record-breaking pace, how will these major investments mold the future of fintech at a global scale? Well, on this episode of Fundamental Fairness, I'll be breaking down the recent Lantam fintech boom with Bill Sulufo, partner and head of international investments at QED. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about Bill and why I'm so pumped to have him on this podcast. Bill is a partner and head of international investments at QED Investors, a leading venture capital firm focused on investing in early stage disruptive financial services companies in the US, UK, and Latin America. He leads QED's investment teams in Latin America, Europe, and Asia. And prior to joining QED, Bill spent nearly 20 years at Capital One, spanning several roles and leading several businesses. His career included scaling Capital One in areas of market product development and credit policy, and he spent a few years in business development roles spanning the telecom, medical finance, and small business finance industry, industry that is very near and dear to my heart. Bill then pivoted his career into general management and spent his last three years leading Capital One's co-brand and private label credit card business, building the business nearly from scratch to one of the top few players in the U.S. market. Ooh, that's a mouthful, and it also is testament to your resume and your reputation certainly precedes you, Bill. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Sean. It's wonderful to be here and appreciate all the great work you guys are doing as well. Appreciate it. Well, as we talked about, you joined QED in 2014 and you helped build their strategy to what the firm is today. And in particular, you focused on leading its international investment platform, if you will. And that portfolio includes the likes of Klarna, Kavak, Nubank, Kinto, 
Andar, Credit Karma, and more. And once again, it's worth double-clicking on New Bank. New Bank was just publicly listed last week and is valued at $45 billion, and I'm sure, and growing, making it the most valuable listed bank in Latin America. So kudos to you. And I always like getting a little bit more background on our protagonist, so to speak. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your transition from industry to venture? Yeah, sure. Grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Went to school in Ann Arbor. I'm a very proud Michigan Wolverine. Joined Capital One right out of college. So managed to spend my first 20 years of my professional career in one place, doing probably any job you could think of (laughs) in the course of what started as a credit card company and and then became a bank. It was early 2014. I just kind of got the sense that it was time for a change. Capital One was an amazing run, but it was, you know, had become a very large, very regulated financial institution. And I was interested in something much more innovative, much smaller, much faster growing. And so, you know, I took about six months off, played a lot of golf, coached a lot of my kids' sports teams. <laughs> nice. And, uh, and spent some time decompressing. But then I had the great fortune to join QED in late 2014 as kind of a part-time special advisor. And then uh, shortly after that became a partner. Interestingly enough, I joined QED the same month that QED made its first investment in Newbank. So the timing there wound up being incredibly fortunate. But as the new guy, and as someone who knew credit cards for over 20 years, I picked up kind of the day-to-day responsibilities for starting to work with Newbank. And that was really the initial kernel, which eventually became, I think we're up to 37 investments in Latin America at this point. So it was quite good fortune to pick such a great partner to start with. Yeah, well, I promise our audience, this is not a commercial. This is simply my great admiration for QED. And I want to double click a little bit on QED and who they are and what they've done for the LATAM region. So in terms of QED and who you are, once again, this podcast talks about fintech and you can't talk about fintech and venture capital without mentioning QED's name. I consider them one, if not the most prominent fintech investor in the world. And so one thing that's unique about QED is that one, you're focused on fintech investing. I think that's pretty clear. But also everyone that's a partner at QED, and I even think all the way down to the associates, they're former operators, right? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the ethos we have as a firm. One of our uh, original founding partners, who's now doing some other very cool things in the industry, I think coined the term that we're operators masquerading as investors. And I think that statement has really you know, hung with us for many years. We certainly have a lot of Capital One DNA, including myself, as well as Nigel and Frank, you know, the other two co-founders of QED. But I think the, the vast, vast majority of our investment team has spent time either building businesses, running businesses, starting businesses. You know, We all have different functional expertise, and we've all worked in various different areas, some in products, some in finance, some on Wall Street, some at Capital One, some in various different startups. But I think that really is the ethos of the firm. It helps us put ourselves in founder shoes, helps us give advice on a number of subjects that you really wouldn't be able to understand unless you've been an operator historically. And we think that that's you know, a really big asset that we have as a firm. And we try our best to be able to partner with founders of our various investments to really help provide practical advice in areas such as scaling and culture and some of the softer side of running businesses, in addition to some of the areas where we have fintech expertise around debt financing, acquiring customers, unit economics, et cetera. Great. You know, we've definitely talked or alluded to the evolution of QED's investments. 
now expanding well beyond the United States. But can you talk about that one in particular, but also others, even like the stage of investment, the size of investment, because QED is evolving very fast from where it was. I mean, I think, by the way, to just draw that point home, I think this started as Nigel's family office, right? <laughs> Alongside Frank Rotman, right? So just to give you an extreme, like you guys actually didn't even start as like a traditional VC fund, right? So can you give me a good sense of that evolution in terms of where it started as a fund and then where it is today and where you guys are going in the future? Sure. QED started back in late 2007, as you say, out of Nigel's family office. Nigel, Frank, and Caribou teamed up with the premise that, hey, we learned a lot in the process of helping build Capital One. That knowledge and expertise would be valuable to the next generation of fintech startups. No one ever called Capital One a fintech, but clearly looking back in time, you can make a good argument. We are one of the original fintechs that were out there. Absolutely. And so it was really probably until 2016, so probably the first nine years of QED, it was all internal capital. Nigel's being the dominant piece, but then the rest of the partners contributing some. And I think over that period, really proved to ourselves that this initial thesis was absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, we learned a lot in helping build Capital One. We were able to team up with founding teams to help share some of that knowledge. And obviously, along the way, picked up a ton of new knowledge that went way beyond the original Capital One scope. And so over the last, you know, really five years, we've been scaling up and are now mostly an externally funded venture firm, although Nigel remains the single largest LP in the fund. You know, we just announced raising essentially twin funds a few months ago, totaling just over a billion dollars in our most recent fund, consisting of both an early stage fund as well as a growth fund. Can you, for our audience, run the spectrum? Can you help us define early stage and growth just for our audience and how you guys are thinking about how those two coexist well together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, QED, probably our bread and butter is doing seed investing and series A type investing. So companies that have maybe been around for a year or two have started to find product market fit, are starting to raise money to start scaling up, but still have a lot to figure out and a lot to learn. I would say over time, QED has both moved earlier and later to where we have a number of programs. I'm guessing we'll talk about some of them later that are really focused on the pre-seed stage really trying to meet founders when they first have their ideas and really trying to partner with people right out of the bat. And then we're also through this growth fund able to partner with companies that are a little bit later stage. Most of the investments that we'll make through our growth fund are really doubling down on existing portfolio companies that have done an incredibly good job. That's what I was wondering. Great. But we also have the ability to invest for the first time in a little bit later stage companies. But really, our bread and butter remains more at the kind of seed series A, pretty early stage of evolution. The idea there being, if we bring a lot of operational expertise to the table, that's usually a lot more valuable early in a company's life cycle. Yeah, perfect. That's what I've always seen QED as an earlier stage investor, as you just defined it. I thought it was remarkable to see that the raise of the growth stage fund wasn't clear to me, at least until now, what the strategy was, which is predominantly, but not exclusively to double down on the early stage bets that you're doing. And quite frankly, I think I'm sure I'm almost positive. There are other funds that model off of your guys' seed investments, which basically (laughs) means if QED is on the cap table, I'm either co-investing or doubling down for the growth. So at that point, you guys definitely need to reap the benefits of your very good aim in early stage investments. So that's great. Now let's talk a little bit. We talk about stage of investment. Now, 
let's segue a little bit into the area that you oversee at QED, which is the regional and expansion of your investment strategy. And have you guys always had a view to go global, regional and global, actually is a better way to put it, because I think based on my knowledge, it really started in the United States. And I would say the early days of QED really focused on the US and the UK. These were the markets that we knew really well from the Capital One days. Nigel, obviously being British, we have a lot of network in the UK. And so we really started off our first you know, maybe seven or eight years, almost exclusively focused on those two markets. We did make the occasional investment elsewhere. I mean, Klarna was during that period. So obviously we deviated from that UK, US focus, but that was the vast, vast majority. And then really Newbank was one of our first forays in more of a conscious strategy to go elsewhere. That didn't necessarily represent at the time a conscious desire to go to Brazil or go to Latin America. It was more a recognition of us knowing David Velez for a long time. Okay. Nigel had had built a relationship with General Atlantic soon after he left Capital One. And as we all know now that David was there at the early part of his career. Mm -hmm. And so QED and David had actually worked on a handful of projects way back in the early days prior to him coming up with the idea for Newbank. And so once he started to think about the idea of credit cards in Brazil, Nigel and Frank were very logical kind of advisors for him having been such an integral part of building Capital One. And so one great piece of evidence that we weren't yet thinking about Latin America is we passed on a seed round. <laughs> so uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh, had we been consciously more thinking about Latin America, we may have made a different choice there and uh, yeah. might have been even better. Thankfully, the relationship continued and we were fortunate enough to invest in his Series A as our first Latin America. Early enough, uh, early enough. Early exactly. Enough. <laughs> it was still, uh, still very good for us, even better for Latin American consumers. But that really got us started. If I flash forward from there to where we are today, I think we are very quickly becoming a global firm. We've now got, I think, 37 investments in Latin America. That's definitely the most significant piece of our business outside the US. The UK has continued and we have an incredibly nice presence centered in London and starting to look more broadly throughout continental Europe, having made investments over the last couple of years, one in Ireland, one in Bulgaria, certainly looking at a broader array. A little over a year ago, We hired someone to start leading our entry into Asia, and we've now made something like four investments in India, which we're very excited about and leaning in very quickly. And then we have an active recruiting search out to partner with someone to lead our entry into Africa, which we think is one of the more emerging hotbeds of fintech and a place where, again, financial inclusion is a huge topic that, you know, is really important for that region. So, you know, I think we're quickly becoming a global firm heavy concentration in Brazil, Mexico, India, and and the UK right now, but very much moving quickly to fill in some of those gaps. That's great. And where are you as the person really leading a lot of these efforts? Where are you spending most of your time? Yeah, I mean, I live right outside of Washington, DC, Northern Virginia, prior to the pandemic, spent a lot of time on the road, mostly Sao Paulo, CDMX, and London. Obviously, the travel's been a lot lower as it has been with everyone else but was fortunate to have made a trip out to both London and Sao Paulo prior to this current situation we're in. So I'm hoping Mm -hmm. borders remain open, but would imagine starting a bit of a travel schedule again in the new year. You know, looking forward to getting out to Bangalore and elsewhere in India. Travel hasn't quite facilitated that since we entered the markets and elsewhere. Yeah, no, that makes sense, but it certainly hasn't stopped you guys from making investments in these regions, which which is amazing. If I paraphrase a little bit of what at least I think I was hearing, which is being a global firm, even though that's clearly now in the cards, and that's where the inertia of QED is going, clearly. 
the way you guys got into expanding the scope of your investments outside of the United States was really your North Star was the entrepreneur, right? And of course, in this case, you couldn't have bet in a better entrepreneur and a better company. And really, now you were able to, in a way, pierce the veil of the investment opportunity in LATAM. And now, since then, you've made many investments and continue to do so. What made Latin America so ripe? And you guys were relatively early. Now, every big fund is, <laughs> has an investment strategy around Latin America. Once again, back to the point, I think there are a lot of funds that do model around QED. But once you pierce that veil, what made Latin America so unique for this type of investment? Because the, the scale of these investments and the valuations, we'll talk about that in a second, are incredibly high. So what makes Latin America uniquely right for this type of investment ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, we just think the conditions in Latin America broadly, maybe even more prominent in Brazil, just to be the perfect laboratory for fintech. Hmm. Using banking as the first example, but I don't think this is only true in banking. You have an incredibly consolidated set of incumbents. So in a banking case, five banks control over 80% of almost every product that banks produce. Brazilian banks in aggregate are the most profitable banks in the world. And you can see it in terms of what interest rates people pay, what fees people pay, how expensive it is for banking products. And you can see, you know, again, this is starting to change due to, I think, the fintech wave. But if you go back five or 10 years, just incredibly slow adopting some of the digital technologies out there. People still had to wait in branches for hours to get simple banking services. The number of entrepreneurs we've talked to who had to wait six months to open their first bank account when they started their company. I know David's been very public about one of his inspirations was taking several months to open his first personal bank account when he first moved to Brazil. So you have this laboratory of incredibly kind of consolidated competition in incredibly profitable markets with really poor customer service. And it creates just a wonderful laboratory for people to come in and challenge that status quo. I would add to that a set of consumers, which are some of the fastest, most active digital adopters in the world. Sao Paulo in particular is one of the top markets for you name your, you know, your app. <laughs> it's getting adopted in Sao Paulo. Social media takes off like crazy in the region throughout Latin America. And so you find consumers that are already using the regular tools of fintech and used to interacting in a very active way. And it's just been a great laboratory to create 10 times better customer experience with cheaper prices, better services, you know, new add-ons. It's just been kind of a, a perfect environment for it. This episode of Fundamental Fairness with Bill Salufo of QED Investors is brought to you by Camino Financial. It's really exciting to see now a byproduct of a lot of investment is really high valuations. (laughs) So the valuations that we're seeing are really high. And so do you think this is because the ecosystem is more mature and ripe for that disruption or is just, or do you think there's a bit of a bubble happening here that we need to be wary of? Yeah. You know, this is a conversation we're having with ourselves almost every day and having Mm -hmm. with all the partners we work with almost every day. I'll give you Bill's personal view on this, and you could Great. probably ask 20 people and you'd get 20 answers. So okay. <laughs> um, you know, we'll find out five years from now who is correct. But my belief is the valuations are mostly a real reflection of opportunity. Do I think there's a little bit of bubble thrown in there? Probably. 
But if we just use QED's experience and I look at, first and foremost, the average quality of the teams that are coming to pitch us is so much higher than what it was five or seven years ago. Not to say there weren't great teams then, obviously, whether it was David or, or Sergio Accreditas, David at Confio, plenty of the companies we backed early on had phenomenal entrepreneurs and, and fantastic teams. But if you just look at the average team that comes, the talent is higher. They know more about the subject than they ever knew before. The roadmap is out there, right? They can see beacons from all around the world of people succeeding in various different ways in fintech. Kind of the playbook to some extent has been published. You know, hey, if I want to accomplish X, here are some of the steps I can take to do X. And so better teams, more sure-footed ideas, capital is abundant and people they're scrounging around with a million dollars of capital to solve something. That's different than if they can go raise 15 million right out of the gates. Infrastructure is better. So you referenced at the very beginning of this podcast, banking as a service, for an example. It still is newer in Latin America than it is in the US, but I think teams are able to assemble creative products, not having to invent everything from scratch, but being able to work with a network of partners to pull it off. So my personal view is most of the, the recent rise in valuations is because of real business trends and a real belief that you can create gigantic winners here. Is the market maybe a little bit overheated in certain places? Probably. And that's something we certainly watch carefully. But I think the main reason valuations are so high is because the opportunities are so high. And you can certainly see that with, you know, again, not just New Bank that we've talked about extensively, but, you know, I know QED has seven unicorns throughout the region, whether we're talking about Loft, Creditas, Confio, Kavak, Bitso, Quintondar. And again, some of these are tackling banking, some are tackling prop tech, some are tackling, you know, the crypto space is another kind of wild west, of, you know, really interesting potential out there. So we're seeing it really cut across various industries and in a number of different ways. Yeah, no, and a special call out to Daniel Fogel. He's my buddy, brother, HBS classmate. We also invest alongside each other too, who's the CEO of Bitso. And I can attest to not only the quality of his leadership, but to your point, the general trend that you're seeing, in fact, just anecdotally from my HBS class, there are about 16 Mexicans. I'm the adopted Mexican. I was born in LA, <laughs> but uh, there are 16 Mexicans and the great majority of them went back to Mexico to build and start amazing companies. One of them being Bitso, which I know QED led, I believe their series B. It was our first ever crypto investments. So nice. We, we owe Mr. Vogel a lot for uh, yeah. getting us over the hurdle and we couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, and actually, yeah. if I can pick up one of the trends you just mentioned, I mean, one of the things that's particularly exciting in Latin America is the percentage of the teams that are locally driven these days is much higher. You know, I would say when we first started looking at Brazil, the vast, vast majority of companies we were talking to were driven by foreign entrepreneurs. And there were a number of wonderful foreign entrepreneurs that went into the market because they saw great opportunities. What we see now is, I think, still some very talented foreign entrepreneurs, but also many, many more talented local entrepreneurs that are now, you know, hey, I don't need to work for a bank for my whole life. I can go in and start my own thing. I can, you know, take some more risk. I believe there's opportunity. And so we're really seeing the ecosystem evolve. I think in a really interesting way, attracting some of the best of the local talent in addition to foreign talent. That is so great. And I think that's a good segue into, I think, some of the impact, direct and indirect, that QED is making in the ecosystem. One is 
you're making billionaires out of entrepreneurs. And the more local they are, right? And it's not you, they're making it, but together you're doing it, right? Better put. And you can't really create that opportunity without investors, right? And that believe in your underlying vision and the underlying market opportunity, because if that didn't exist, this would all be a big Ponzi scheme, which is clearly not the case. And so from that perspective, that in effect creates generational wealth. And that's exciting because that's great if they're foreign founded firms in LATAM, but if they're local entrepreneurs that are more likely just to give back within their local community. And that's really special. But also I want to talk about another initiative at QED, which is you recently launched a $12 million fund named Fontis to focus on pre-seed and seed companies in the region. Can you tell us a little bit about the Fontes Fund and the mission behind it? Yeah, sure. Fontes is Latin for fountains, which mm. we thought was an appropriate metaphor for what we're trying to do there. You know, as QED was growing as a firm, and I think this isn't unique to QED, we've certainly seen this with a number of other firms, we get incented to want to write larger and larger checks, take mm. bigger and bigger ownership stake. And, and, you know, there's plenty of very large investments we're very happy to continue to do. But we also felt like we were missing something that we had in our family office days, which was really the ability to take a little bit more risk, partner with very young companies with relatively smaller investment size, partner with other firms in the region. We were seeing that was getting harder and harder to do. And we absolutely love partnering with local firms in the countries we operate in. And so we created this fund largely to be able to start partnering with entrepreneurs earlier and earlier in their life cycle, to be able to do it as part of coalition rounds with other incredibly talented local venture firms. And and the other factor that plays in is just the ecosystem has grown so much that we feel like back in the day, we used to see the vast, vast majority of what was happening in fintech in the market and the way things were going with us making four or five large new investments a year. That just wasn't big enough in terms of the scope of what was happening in the region. And so we wanted to create an additional offering for the market where we could partner with many more entrepreneurs, really help them out, maybe in a little bit lighter touch way than their full investment, but be able to start with entrepreneurs early, be able to kind of get to know them over time, which we really like to do. And we feel like it's been a really nice success so far. You know, I think since launching the fund in May, I want to say we've made nine or 10 investments. You know, I always lose track a little bit of when we agree to make an investment and when it actually does. Um, I won't hold it against you. Oh, good. <laughs> exactly. but, uh, but we really feel like that's expanded our reach into the market. And one of the things that we tried to do that, again, has been a huge success for us is, you know, I think we've partnered with over 30 entrepreneur LPs in the market and invited them to join us in the fund, many of whom are founding teams at our portfolio companies several of whom are other entrepreneurs in the region. Maybe they built companies that weren't quite fintech. So we never really saw them the first time. And we've you know, really started to only scratch the surface on how we can work with that community to really help provide value to entrepreneurs starting fintech businesses these days. Once again, I think that your ability to open up the tent, at least in a real way through Fontis, I think plants a lot of seeds that will create a lot of institutional knowledge and Quite frankly, I I bring this all back to generational wealth creation, either directly through the entrepreneurs, but also, quite frankly, through the products that you're creating. And so let's talk about the products that you're investing behind our creating, because effectively, a lot of what you're doing is removing inefficiency and cost from the system, which should in effect translate into savings to end users. 
right? And so I want to talk a little bit about these trends because this is really where we see that intersection between fintech and financial inclusion. And we talked a lot about new bank and them removing that friction from the process and what is a very profitable market. But can you help me better understand this? So what's the dynamic? At the end of the day, you want to come in and remove inefficiency. You want to pass as much savings to your end user. But at the same time, you still want to have a profitable business. (laughs) And I think you can run that dynamic, not just in fintech, but many other industries, Amazon being the most extreme example of its impact on retail. But can you help me better understand that dynamic? Let's start with the banking industry in particular. What type of friction and cost is being removed and how is that leading to more accessibility to products in the banking sector in Brazil, for instance? Sure. There's a number of examples. I think I'll pick on one which is very simple to understand, which is price, Mm. right? When we entered the market in Brazil seven years ago, a typical personal installment loan might cost eight, nine, 10% a month in interest rates if you got it through the bank. And it's just almost hard to fathom coming from the U.S. on how a loan could be that expensive. And over the last seven years, a number of firms have kind of tried to figure out various different routes of making loans more affordable. One that we partnered with very early on was Creditas. And what they realized is that the vast, vast majority of Brazilians who own a home own a home free and clear. Certainly less than 25% of all homes have a mortgage attached to them today. Less than 25% of all cars that somebody own have a car loan attached to it today. And so Creditas used a route of trying to use these unencumbered assets that many consumers had to basically create a secured lending product. And they were able to offer products at 2 or 3% a month instead of you know 9 or 10% a month. Wow. So that was their particular angle on how to go about smashing the price of credit. You know, Newbank has gone about trying to create a, a data analytics capability and create sort of a uh, almost a business cross-selling personal loans to their credit card and debit card customers so that they can get access to a lot better data and therefore be able to offer dramatically lower prices to their customers than some banks have. The other place that I would view friction is in a little bit less of a financial route. So if you have to wait for four hours at a bank branch to get something done and open an account or open something, what else could you be doing with that time? And so I think so much of what FinTech is all about is also just removing friction, allowing you to get access to whatever products on an app in your pocket you know, if something goes wrong, being able to kind of use WhatsApp to contact customer service and get something mm-hmm. fixed quickly and easily and on your terms. And I think in that regard, FinTech has made tremendous progress at just sort of simplifying the lives of folks, you know, not just in Latin America, really around the world, but but specifically Latin America, which I think has been historically known as a very high friction place to do banking or buy real estate or make investments or you name the uh, you name the set of services they haven't always been very user friendly and i think technology's come a long way toward removing a lot of that friction awesome and you know we can't talk about latin america and fintech and not talk about cryptos and obviously i already alluded to the fact that that bitso is near and dear to my heart and there is another podcast for those who are generally interested in having an hour deep dive into that Daniel Fogel was on this podcast and he broke it down for us. Can you give us some general trends? How is crypto changing the Latin America financial services landscape? And where are the use cases that are most popular? I think payments, remittances 
particular seemed to be the obvious one, but funny enough, that's been the one that's been delayed the most, right? And there have been other less obvious use cases that are probably amongst the most prominent ones, not to mention, of course, good old-fashioned trading of <laughs> crypto assets. <laughs> but uh, can, can you give us a sense of the spectrum of use cases if, to the extent you can tie that into how that's removing friction and cost from the system? That would also be helpful too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll talk about one use case in particular, which was actually quite important to us really helping internalize crypto and where it could head in the long run. And, and that's the, the advent of a stable coin, whether it's pegged to USD, which most of them are, could be pegged to the euro. You know, if you are a middle-class consumer in Argentina and you've lived in a world of hyperinflation and you don't really trust your local currency, many people are trying to accumulate US dollar denominated assets. And historically, that's been really hard and really expensive to do. Really, it's only been the very top of the pyramid that's been able to get access to those types of things. And I think a USD stablecoin is an incredibly democratic way in a very low cost way for average people to acquire US dollar denominated assets. You know, you can open a BITSO account, you can buy a USD stablecoin, the costs are very low, you can maintain that in your wallet. And it becomes a really nice hedge against potential inflation in the region. And so that to me, I think is a fantastic use case. And one that honestly sitting here in Washington, D.C. isn't something we necessarily think about every day, although I do think inflation in the U.S. is going to go up over time. Mm, yeah. um, but I think that's one example, you know, one of many, many examples of how crypto and an emerging markets lens can help solve some very real world problems. I'm pretty excited about what the potential is. I think we're only scratching the surface of where that particular tool can take us. And I want to dig into this example because I think there is a dimension to it that I think is reflective of other examples in the market, which is great. But if I'm the government of Argentina, I may be threatened by the use of this alternative currency that could put my economic stability at risk. And so where do you see regulation in this use case in particular, and how generally are regulators reacting to this type of disruption, not just in crypto, but other industries as well? Yeah, I mean, look, I think to your point, I'd even broaden the question on regulation beyond crypto. I mean, I think mm -hmm. we're seeing regulators in various markets move in an incredibly broad array of directions, right? I mean, some governments at El Salvador are very much embracing of crypto. Other governments, I think India, have formally banned it completely. Yet there's plenty of Indians that are actively using crypto through, through very wallets. I'm not exactly sure how a government, honestly, could ban this. We actually do think, though, if you talk to the most enthusiastic crypto believers and think that it's going to upend the entire banking system in a matter of a year or two, we actually think regulation is one of the things that's going to cause this to take quite a long time to take hold. You know, I don't know that any regulator has necessarily figured out what is the right answer and how are we going to regulate this? I think everyone's kind of trying to learn together. And what's true in the crypto space for sure is once you think you have your arms around it, you're wrong because it's innovated in, in 20 other different directions you hadn't thought of before. I think the notion of regulation here is going to be one of the more challenging issues that the entire crypto space needs to face. And I don't pretend to know, <laughs> you know what the answers are in terms of how to do it. We do have folks on our team that are very actively trying to engage with regulators across some countries. But again, it's a space that's moving so fast. And I think the regulators will always have a difficult time keeping up. I think even the entrepreneurs in the space have a difficult time keeping up. Yeah. Uh, it's moving so fast. Yeah. I need to bring my buddy Felipe Vallejo, who's the chief regulatory officer of BITSO on this podcast, because it's an interesting topic. And if you ask him, he would just add to that, which is like, 
we're almost at the point of no return. I mean, for regulators, I mean, they can try to control and put guardrails, but to stop it completely, we've already seen two extreme case studies, one in India that you just mentioned, another one in China. And you saw how the market innovated around those changes almost overnight. I mean, that's crazy. It's truly decentralized. Finance. By the way, it is one thing that we, uh, <laughs> we really appreciate about BITSO is how seriously they take regulation. I know yeah. they've gone to great pains to try to be be regulated, to try to participate in, in the local regions, because it's going to be really hard for this to take hold if everything that happens are sort of outside of the regulatory bodies. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. 100%. Yeah, yeah. You need to work directly. I mean, we were having these conversations directly with regulators, and you have to have the open dialogue. And quite frankly, regulators, some may be in denial, but there's others that have a more medium long-term view and understand the complexity of this. And there's only one way to manage it as and regulate it as best as possible, which is to work directly with your innovator counterparts in the crypto world and work to, to regulate it so that everyone wins, right? So that's great. And I'm going to ask you a, a fairly broad-based question. It's a bit vague on purpose, but would love to just get your general thoughts on this, which is what does fundamental fairness mean to you? Yeah, I think it's a number of aspects. I mean, I probably start with transparency. I think one of the places where, you know, kind of the established financial services ecosystem often fails are not being clear to consumers about how much does a product cost? How does somebody interact with that product? You know, look, I came from the credit card industry and was very excited actually to see the announcement a couple of weeks ago where Capital One was eliminating overdraft fees. I think overdraft fees and bank accounts, over limit fees and credit cards are a couple of the more challenging places here where customers don't really see the fee. They don't really understand how they hit it. Banks are making choices about whether they allow people to go over limit or go overdraft. And so that's kind of a good example of if a product is disclosed, if customers understand what they're getting, you know, what's the service they're getting, how much are they paying for it in a very transparent way, I think you know, many things wind up being acceptable. Some products are high cost for very good reasons. Some products are very high cost for very bad reasons. And I think transparency is one of the key aspects toward making sure products are really fair. So probably any conversation I have around that subject probably starts with transparency. That's amazing. And I'm going to cheat a little bit. That's typically one of my last question before I ask you to give us any contact information, how we can follow you. But before you do that, you have probably one of the best visibility on fintech trends at a global scale in the world. And so top three fintech trends in 2022. And you can be brief about it. Oh, top three. I mean, uh, well, look, we already talked about crypto. I mean, I think anyone who's not sort of somehow focused on crypto and where it's going, missing something. Full disclosure, QED is not at all on the leading edge of that. I mean, I think we've been a bit cautious, have been really focused on what are the use cases, have now made a handful of investments, now have much more of our team really actively focused. But I think that's a trend that nobody's ignoring and is very much here to stay. If I were to pick one trend that I'm personally just really intrigued by, it's the whole notion of embedded finance. How do you really take either offline businesses or marketplaces or e-commerces and essentially wrap those with a financial services layer, whether it's payments or lending or insurance or you name it? I think that's actually one of the wonderful innovations that's happening right now. I think financial services add revenue power to many businesses that create a lot of real world value but aren't necessarily all that profitable. By combining financial services into, say, marketplaces, 
you can solve some of financial services problems around acquisition costs and finding customers and distributing products. And I think they fit incredibly well together. You know, if you look at some of QED's more recent investments over the last couple of years, and you sort of look at it and say, why is QED doing that? Aren't they a fintech company? That's not a fintech business. Mm. It's almost certainly built on the embedded finance theory, where even if we're investing, Nuvo Cargo is a great example. They're, you know, almost the the cross-border trucking between US and Mexico. It's very clear that the key to making this business work long run is going to be around payments, insurance, escrow, financing, et cetera. And there's many more that look like it. So that's probably one of the trends that I'm personally just really excited about. I'll pull up a third trend, which is only loosely fintech related. It's probably a lot more broadly than that, but just kind of a personal fascination of call it the future of work. In this post-COVID world, how is work going to get done? We've got a few companies that are kind of all in and racing to try to get people back to the office full time. Mm-hmm. We've got a much larger number of companies that are, you know, look, I'm remote first, I'm remote forever, I'm never going to have an office again. Most of our companies are somewhere in the hybrid mix. There's so many different strategies out there for what they're trying. My personal view is nobody knows what their actual strategy is going to be long run because there's going to need to be so much experimentation happening. You see companies hiring in talent bases they've never thought of doing before. I'm sitting here in New York City and sort of the race from New York City up to upstate, people working from country houses and vacation houses and thinking they'll never come back to New York City. Is just sort of one of countless examples of this. So I don't know, maybe it's cheating because it's not necessarily a financial services trend. No, but trust me, this is top of mind <laughs> for us as a fintech. It definitely influences the behavior of your portfolio companies in one way, shape, or form. So that makes perfect sense. And, and by the way, one of the things I think that's influencing QED strategy on moving global, I don't think we'd be moving as fast as we are if Zoom uh, didn't happen. Oh, uh, no, absolutely. And so I'm sure there are a lot of people hearing in entrepreneurs, people that want that are either innovating in fintech, want to join a fintech, want to learn more about you and QED. What are the best ways that people can follow you in QED? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is probably the most active platform that I use. If I can advertise my colleagues' platform, Fintech Junkie on Twitter, that's not me personally, but probably QED's the loudest voice out there. Frank is currently tweeting about his exploration into the crypto space, and it's kind of fascinating to read his tweet storms. But for me personally, it's LinkedIn. Very much uh, welcome anyone uh, reaching out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Really appreciate the impact that you're having, not only in fintech, but quite frankly, in millions of people's lives around the world. Because I truly believe that fintech is the spear to for financial inclusion. So thank you very much for taking the time and look forward to potentially having you back I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for all the great work you're doing as well. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing, our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Osmar Manzano, assistant producer, Melanie Diaz, and our senior producer, Elianette Romero.